Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I am your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about political decision-making, polarization, maybe a little bit of how we got to this situation where we uh, we feel kind of our democracy is a bit uh, threatened. And to do that, we're very honored to have as our guest, Dr. David Orenthlicker. Dr. Orenthlicker, or Dr. O, as his students call him, is a member of the Nevada Assembly and previously served as a member of the Indiana House of Representatives. He was trained at Harvard Law and Harvard School of Medicine, widely recognized for his expertise in health law and constitutional law. Dr. O has testified before Congress, had his scholarship cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, and has served on many national, state, and local commissions. He is the author of the book, Matters of Life and Death, Making Moral Theory Work in Medical Ethics and the Law. And his new book is Two Presidents Are Better Than One, The Case for Bipartisan, a Bipartisan Executive Branch. David, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. It's great to be back. So I, I just want to start things out. Uh, when, As a representative... Uh, have you noticed how your political, uh, how your, your decision making has different than what you thought it would be coming in? Are this are influences different? Are ways you um, operate in the political sphere different than what you thought it would be as when you're practicing like a, uh, as a doctor or a lawyer? Well, when I first ran, I promised my future constituents that I would be a bipartisan legislator. I'm not the only one who said it, and I really meant it. And I think I did a better, have done a better job than most legislators. But you get in and you realize how hard it is to stay above the partisan fray. You really get sucked in because the pressures to act in a partisan way are so strong. And a lot of that has to do with the nature of our political system and we have a winner take all system, right? One party gets a majority and gets to control the proceedings. And, and the desire to, to have that power, this winner take all power drives the partisan conflict because you become part of a team, right? If your team isn't on top, you're not gonna get anything done. So, so I found that I acted in a more partisan way than I wanted to or that I expected to. Now, did you notice when you, did you notice early on this change in your decision? And did you notice any bias that was happening in your thinking? Because there are, there's some research that shows that, you know, when you have this in-group uh, affiliation, party affiliation, it will bias your thinking. Did you, I, I guess I'm asking how, how soon did you notice this impact on you? And did you notice any bias? Well, I don't know that it affected my, the way I thought about issues, but it, the pressures came on votes. So, you know, you get a lot of pressures when you're a legislator from your vote, the constituents, your family and friends, your donors. And I never felt that I changed a vote because of pressures from any of those groups. The only votes that I changed because of 
external pressures were from the party caucus, my fellow Democrats, because there was a couple of times where it was very important for us to vote as a team. Now, it, it didn't change outcomes, fortunately. I didn't, you know, I would have voted differently, but fortunately it didn't matter for the ultimate outcome. But those pressures are the hardest to resist because as I said, you're, you're part of a team. And if your team doesn't get the control, if we don't come back with a majority, you're not gonna get anything done. And, you know, I, I say to people who don't like filibusters, just spend two weeks in a legislative chamber where you're in the minority without a filibuster and see how, see what you think then. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Can you talk about one of those times when you would have wanted to vote differently and what that was like and um, anything you think we might want to hear? Yeah, there were uh, one... One vote was, you know, a sort of prominent issue. And, you know, I had staked out a position and the caucus was trying to use this issue as leverage for, you know, negotiating other things, right? If, if, if you want our votes on this issue, we want votes on other issues. So that was the political game that was being played and we were, trying to drag things out as long as we could. And I said to the caucus that, you know, I'll help you up to a point, but in the end, I, I, you know, I can't vote in the way you want me to, but things took an unexpected term and I ended up voting in a way I preferred not to. As I said, the, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. The, I wanted the, Proposal to pass, it did pass. Another time um, where a much small, less important issue, I can't even remember the details, but one of, one of our uh, big funders, uh, it was a union, wanted us to vote a certain way on an issue. The caucus said, you know, asked us if we would vote that way because it was important to our union supporter. And it was a just it wasn't a big issue. I didn't have strong feelings about it. So I was willing to cast the vote the way they wanted us to. Um, so those were two ones that I can think of where the caucus changed my vote, the caucus pressures. When you think about, um, I mean, one of the biggest issues is like, uh, you know, how we can cooperate as a country and how our political system will work to kind of collaborate and solve problems. The, it, there's a structural kind of uh, approach to this and it, it seems like that's one of the things that you're trying to do with your new book and then there's maybe just like your own personal charge to yourself about a resisting pressure or avoiding bias and, and things like that in your mind which is more important it's kind of almost a social or an individual differences social psychology or individual differences questions which, which do you think is more powerful yeah, I think the structural um, pressures are more powerful. And, and this goes back to what James Madison, when he was designing the Constitution, you know, people aren't angels. That, and so you've got to design a system that channels behavior in the direction you want. And, and that's what my main conclusion after serving is, 
people think, oh, we just need to change the people we elect. No, we, we all respond to the pressures. And, and when you're in a winner-take-all system, when whoever has the majority gets all the power, right? You can win by 50% plus one, but you get 100% of the power. And, and it's a lot of, you know, it's very high stakes. And when you have that kind of a system, winner-take-all high stakes, people fight bitterly to prevail. And it's just, you can't escape that. So I think changing the system so we don't have that translation of a bare majority into all the power. And so it invites this kind of partisan fighting. It also isn't fair to voters, right? If you're a part of that 49.9% and you get none of the, you have no voice, where's the fairness to that, right? So countries, my favorite example, Switzerland, where they're sharing of power, it avoids the winner-take-all problem. It makes sure everybody's represented. And I think you get better decisions, right? I have my views. I'm a Democrat. I think my preferences are better, but I also recognize that there's a lot of legitimate disagreement. And if you require power to be shared, then you make sure all perspectives are represented. And I think that would go a long way too, to avoid the threats to democracy we see today. Because when you say to half the public every after every presidential election, your voice won't be heard for four years. I think that's a real, that causes a lot of problems. It's not, it certainly doesn't justify the violence we saw, but I think it explains why people are unhappy after a presidential election, why half the public is, you know, in opposition and objects. And, you know, you see that no matter which side, it's more extreme sometimes given different, but think back after President Obama won, right? The opposition mobilized within a couple months of his, the Tea Party formed within a couple months of his inauguration. The opposition, the, the resistance, as it was called to President Trump, began even before he was inaugurated, immediately after the election. Because in both cases, right, you're saying to half the public, you're out of luck for four years. And of course, their response is to say, we're going to do what we can to, to undermine the current administration so we can get power back. And you see that in, in Congress, you see that in the public. And I think that, it, it, you know, exacerbates other causes of partisan conflict. It seems like some of the politicians who want to play by maybe their higher moral standards end up leaving the game. I'm thinking of recently, of course, I'm thinking of um, Jeff Flake and, and John McCain. Um, I don't, I guess John McCain may have left the, the game due to passing on, but, but wh what are your thoughts on kind of the strength versus the, the, the strength to stay in and play dirty versus the, um, the folks with, with moral resolve who end up leaving and how that plays out for kind of the party game as a whole. Yeah, I think what you see is when you have this, these pressures 
to win. It's to win at all costs and people will do anything to win. And, and that does become an unpleasant place to be. Now, I do think people often, candidates and elected officials often misjudge the extent to which they have to make compromises for political reasons. My sense was if you have a good relationship with your constituents, that they trust you, that you care about them, and you know, going door to door and showing up at their meetings is a good way to signal that, they'll cut you a lot of slack on the issues. I mean, I can remember voters who disagree with me 180%, but because I help them with their local issue uh, or they, I did other things to form a bond with them, they voted for me. And, and I think elected officials often underestimate that. Now that does take me to the other pressure that you asked, you know, what pressures are there? Elected officials are incredibly risk averse, which is a little counterintuitive because to run for office, you got to put yourself out there. It's a very risky thing to run for office. But once you're elected, you know, then everybody knows somebody who lost their seat by a few votes. I only won my seat against an incumbent by 37 votes, first time out of 20,000. So everybody knows about those. And, you know, it, it's you know, you people care, worry more about losing something they have than not getting something they don't have. So once you're in elected office, I think there's exact, you know, the risk aversion is too high. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCR and the show Let's Get Psyched. And we're talking to Dr. David Orntlicker, Dr. O, about the influences in political decision making and some of the polarization um, that occurred and, try, and trying to make sense of this. Uh, and Dr. O, y- y- when, if, is there something that could be done right now? Uh, and how do you uh, explain what's going on right now? Our, our, it does seem like, our, our, it feels like our democracy is, 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 is threatened at least. How, how do you explain this in terms of human behavior and, and the system and things like that? Well, one uh, way to think about it that I find helpful is in terms of game theory. You've got people who are trying to decide, do they cooperate or do they fight? And in it, when you're in a winner-take-all, high-stakes competition, there are these powerful incentives to fight. And you get into this tit-for-tat escalating cycle. One side does something aggressive to to exercise or gain power and the other retaliate. So just think about the, the debate over the filibuster. So, right, the, the Democrats, when President Obama was trying to get his judicial nominees through and this Republican Senate was blocking, they said, okay, we're gonna eliminate the filibuster for most judges, not Supreme Court justices, but other judges and other executive branch appointees so they got all these appoint nominations through. And then the Republicans, when they got back, said, okay, we're going to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. And then President Trump was able to get through his three nominees. And now, you know, the Democrats are talking about, well, we'll just have a limited exception for the legisl- for the filibuster for legislation for voting rights. And I think, well, the, what, 
we can expect as Republicans will say, okay, we'll just push that and have a, a bigger exception to the filibuster. But game theory tells you tit for tat just invites escalation. And just, we end up exacerbating the partisan conflict rather than trying to defuse it. And we need to look for strategies to dampen the partisan conflict, not to exacerbate it and just build it to the next higher and higher levels. And that's what we're seeing now. It's just escalating from one year to the next. So is your thought that the best way to do this through uh, a structural change? I mean, do we have to wait for a change in the Constitution? Or do you feel like a group of folks or an individual's perspective can take it upon themselves to not engage the tit for tat and uh, propose a different direction? Yeah, I'd like to think so as an ethicist, appealing to people's virtue and to do the right thing. That would be nice, but the structural pressures just overwhelm it. And unless we get to a system where we guarantee that power will be shared rather than a winner-take-all system, you're just not going to get there. As I said, I like the example of Switzerland because that's what they do in their executive branch. It's a semi-parliamentary system, so they have a seven-person executive branch. But their approach is we want all major parties represented in our executive branch, and we want the, that the seven members who represent the politi full political spectrum to decide by consensus. They have to agree. And if that's the understanding, you're all going to have a seat at the table and you all have input, then there's nothing to be gained by fighting. So that's what game theory says. You, you've got to put people into a situation where their incentives are to, to, to cooperate, not to fight. Now, in looking at uh, what's going on, try, me trying to explain what is going on with um, right-wing folks. So... Uh, it, 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 it feels like supporters of Trump are the main drivers of this uh, a threat to democracy. And so I, I went into the literature and tried to explain this. And I did happen upon some studies that show that the construct of collective narcissism will explain a lot of what folks are, of why folks are doing. It allows people to excuse bad behavior, um, biases their moral judgments, um, believe that uh, tra trampling over democratic norms is okay, explaining, again, explaining the bad behaviors of, of folks in their in-group their in -group affiliation. Um, that seems to explain a lot of what's going on. And they saw this in the left and the right, by the way, but that, that right-wing folks were more susceptible for it, right? And there was a strong correlation with right-wing authoritarianism which is, you know, is kind of inherently anti-democratic. So um, is, do, we, uh, do you feel like we need to target collective narcissism? Which, you know, if, if, if folks out there want to kind of understand about what collective narcissism is, this is a construct that has to do with things like, I wish other groups would move quickly to recognize the authority of the United States or the United States deserves special treatment. I will never be satisfied until the United States gets the recognition it deserves. This, these are some of the questions from a collective narcissism measure that, they, that has been used. What are, what are your thoughts about this construct? And can we do anything about it when people have this and are, are driving some of the, their actions? Yeah, it would be nice if we could address that phenomenon. I'm skeptical about the 
ability to do that. And in some ways, I mean, there's so many aspects of our society that reinforce that view, right? We expect you to be more concerned about your family, your neighborhood, your football team, your universe, you know, where you went to school. We sort of encourage that kind of identification. Uh, but here's, I think, where the structural changes come in. You know, the Trump supporters, you know, go across a lot of boundaries, but they're not a big enough percentage of the public. Why they're effective is because when you're a more moderate Republican, your choice is, I work with the, the Trump side of my party, or I let the Democrats have power. And, right. and so that's where the sharing of power comes in. The only way you get these fringe movements to get any traction, because they are very small, the only way they get traction is if there's a larger group that's denied a voice in policymaking. So like if you look at the growth of the Tea Party, that was a, again, a small part of the Republican Party, but they were able to gain traction because all Republicans were shut out of the Oval Office. And so they were willing to work with the Tea Party. And on the other hand, when Obama was in power, think about the sort of the radical movement on the left, the Occupy Wall Street, didn't gain any traction. They had some legitimate concerns, but they wouldn't need, they weren't big enough on their own. They need to attract support from a larger group. And that larger group of Democrats had a voice. Barack Obama, their president, was in office. So they didn't need to align with an, with an Occupy Wall Street in the way mainstream Republicans were more found aligning with the Tea Party more appealing. Uh, so as our um, as individual citizens, um, should we be then uh, focused on structural change and having another constitutional convention? Is it, maybe I should not be so upset about the Trump supporters and I should just channel my energy into uh, a constitu- support for a constitutional convention. And- yeah, we, I, yeah, I, I think constitutional change is, is necessary. You know, the framers understood all this. They, they understood about the need for checks and balances to prevent what they called factions from gaining power and be able to impose their self-interest over the general public interest. So they tried to design a system to prevent that. But what they didn't expect was the growth of presidential power. Presidents were expected to just carry out orders from Congress. Congress would make decide all these policy questions and Congress is has representatives from across the spectrum, whether it's geographical or political. And so that was the, their under, ex, expectation that this large Congress would have a deliberate over policies and, and the different sides would come up to compromises and then the president would just execute them. The pre, it's the executive branch, right? Execute, not make policy, but it, over time presidents with executive orders and declarations of war and all other things that they're not supposed to be able to do, they do. And so now we end up with a a single president who just represents one party exercising all this power and and denying representation to half the public. So, So yeah, I think we need 
constitutional change. I would do it through a targeted amendment or two rather than a constitutional convention, because once you get into a convention, uh, who knows what will happen in, in that kind of a setting. So can, can you flesh out um, your idea of the how the bipartisan executive branch would make more effective use of human psychology for collaboration? Yeah, so the, my vision would be you'd have the top, instead of the top vote getter becoming president and getting 100% of the power with, you know, 51, 52, 53% of the popular vote, which is what we see in more recent elections, that the top two vote getters would share the executive power. So, Yes, it's true that somebody who gets 48% of the vote gets 50% of the power, but that 2% deviation is a lot fairer than 52% going to 100% of the power. And they'd share the power and they would have to agree on decisions, whether it's signing a bill, nominating a Supreme Court justice, or issuing an executive order, they'd have to agree. And what game theory tells us, if you make them equals, and, you know, what things about game theory, if you are in a, in a equal relationship and you, you're gonna be with making decisions with this person repeatedly over an extended period of time, right? If it's just a one shot deal, you know, you see Trump who tells us all of these real estate and other deals where he tried to screw the other person because it was a one shot thing. But if you're working with somebody over and over, you, it's important that you have a collegial relationship because if you try to, take advantage of them, they're just gonna retaliate and you get that tit for tat escalation. So equal, equal standing and repeated relationships over an extended time horizon is what's important. Now, the other important thing is, I'm comfortable saying we should give them equal power because our democratic and Republican parties are so balanced, right? It wouldn't work if, one party would get two thirds of the vote and the other one third and then you have equal power. But we have a pretty stable two party system where you know, the balance of power is pretty even. So that's why I think it's reasonable. I'm wondering how realistic, also thinking about sociologically and psychologically speaking, how reasonable would it be that we would go in that direction? Does it seem like there's an authoritarian kind of increase, like people are wanting uh, someone just to solve problems and, you know, just maybe all over the world, there seems to be a little bit of that happening. Yeah, and this is something I talk about in the book, and you all may have some good insights here from psychological perspective. But I, write, I talk, I have a chapter or a section of a chapter on the savior phenomenon, which, you know, is so, you know, Jesus and kings and there's this desire, the sheriff who rides in on the white horse, people want this single person they think will save them. And, and I think that's, that tendency drives a lot of, you know, the, the desire to have a president with a lot of power. I think it's a misguided desire, but I think that it's an important desire and people seem to think if we just elect that right person, Barack Obama will save the world, Donald Trump will save the world, Joe Biden, whoever you're supporting, there's this myth, mythic 
belief that we can solve problems with the, the single right person, and it's just not true. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked to Dr. David Orentlicker. David, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com, And you can also listen to past episodes and many extended versions of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.